Hi, friends. The world got you down. Don't be sad. Listen to $2 Late Fee with Zach and Dustin. $2 Late Fee is the podcast that celebrates the best decade of entertainment, the 1980s. We pick a movie and soundtrack from our youth that we loved and see if it holds up today. We also interview your favorite celebrities from that era. All in the spirit of positivity and togetherness. Check us out at $2LateFee.com. Put down that smartphone and listen to me. I'm Matthew Milligan, professional musician and lifelong Weird Al fan. Each week, I'm joined by professional podcaster and close personal friend Matt Kelly to take a dive off the deep end into the vast career of pop culture icon Weird Al Yankovic on our show, Weird Algorithm. Along with some very special guests from the worlds of music and comedy, we tackle every song, every television appearance, and every bit of sketch comedy Al has produced in chronological order. Covering the good old days of My Bologna and Eat It, the fun zone of tacky and white and nerdy, and everything in between. As we go, we're ranking the songs, albums, and music videos in the hopes of creating the ultimate guide to a career bigger than the biggest ball of twine in Minnesota. So the next time you're having one of those days stuck in a traffic jam wondering why does this always happen to me, just kick off your sneakers and stick around for a while because we've got it all on Weird Algorithm. Available wherever you get your podcasts. And now you know. Was that enough references? And welcome to another episode of Horror Movie Night. It is 2021, and that means that for the first time ever, Fright Night is officially in our unwritten <laughs> rule of 10-year gap between release. Obviously, there's been exceptions, but we try to stick within it. I want to say something real quick, and Brian and Scott can say that I'm completely in the wrong with this statement, but I want to clarify right out the gate that all three of us, as far as I understand are in fact fans of the original Fright Night, but we also all believe that if you were to take off your nostalgia goggles for a second, that Fright Night 2011 is actually a better movie in almost every single way. Yeah. Yeah, and we're going to just, we're going to spend the next 25 minutes telling you why. (laughs) Yeah, and and I think that that's, like, I'm going to be coming down hard on Fright Night, the original, not because I hate the movie, but to make the comparisons of like where this movie succeeds, where that film only goes like half the distance to me. First and foremost, no Lisa Loeb in the original one. Hell but... yeah! <laughs> so, already gets points for me right out the gate. No, uh, so there is one thing that I think Fright Night does better than the 2011 Fright Night. There's some questionable things with the Peter Vincent thing. I, I get it. I don't love it. I like Peter Vincent as like a, a late night TV show host, but also there wasn't any of those in 2011. So I get having to change it. But the the weird like Chris Angel magician thing. Come on, man. Eh. 
Uh, I'm going to let you say your piece, and then I'm going to tell you you're wrong. Yeah, just because of where the location is, it makes so much yeah, more sense. Yeah, uh, that's true. That is true. Because I guess it makes way less sense that in the original movie, they live right where they're taping this late-night horror show host that was a former actor's movie. Yeah. <laughs> it makes way more sense to be in Vegas where there's a, a magician. But actually, I'm getting way ahead of ourselves. Scott, you picked this. Can you tell us why you picked it? Yeah, it's been on my to-do list for a fucking year. I, I literally could go back. We won't. If we had all the time in the world and no real lives, um, less real lives than we currently already do, we could go back into our group chat, and I am pretty sure last January or February, I was like, next year I'm going to pick Fright Night <laughs> 2011. Yeah. I love this movie. I, I mean, I don't think it's a perfect movie at all. Don't let me get ahead of myself there like the cgi is bad oh it's very bad yeah but that's, and that's okay like that that is okay by me because i think that the characterizations are better in this movie it's one of those great remakes where they do fan service but they also don't break your suspension of disbelief on why the characters are acting the same way 30 years apart or 25 years apart or whatever it yeah. is. Oh, I mean, I think that we could almost do 25 minutes just on how the Evil Ed character is oh, he's so much. improved. He's so much. I've hated Evil Ed in the original Fright Night since the first time I saw that movie, which was, you know, I think I was a sophomore in high school or something like that. I never understood why people thought that he was fun or cool or quotable because the real takeaway from Evil Ed, first of all, is his you're so cool Brewster line, which when you, like Matt said, if you take off your nostalgia goggles and rewatch the original Fright Night, Evil Ed's cadence of that line, his delivery is wrong. And then when you see McLovin do it, it's right. It's the whole fucking point of that line. Yeah. It's him being, like, he's spitting out this, like, you're so cool. Like, that. that's the whole point. And it's, it's absolutely mind-numbing to me when people will shit on this movie and be like, well, that's just fan service. No, they're basically taking something that was wrong in the first movie and making it right. That's my take on it. Do you it. remember when uh, Bill Hader was doing Al Pacino? auditioning for back to the future <laughs> yeah. that, that that's how it was in the original when he's like 88 miles an hour great scott <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's i mean evil ed has so many good lines throughout the movie uh the the remake right in the remake the two lines that i wrote down that made me just kind of chuckle was when he's like i didn't name him i just report the facts when they're like talking about <laughs> His name being Jerry. And then the other one is like, he's yelling at Brewster about something. And he just ends it with, and I'm like, seriously so mad that you think I retweet. Yeah, that was, that was pretty funny. That was pretty funny. I don't, I don't like, I, I don't know. I, I feel like you take some, my, my only issue with that character, and it's not even the character, it's just unfair. It's like, you take someone who's just so authentically themselves, right? Not a bad guy. His friend gets cool, leaves him behind. He ends up getting killed, but then he gets he he gets killed again. So he doesn't even get a happy ending. Like Evil Ed just gets no, but, gets a shit. But he didn't get a happy ending in the, the first. Thing. I know. I'm, I'm the saying the character as a whole. You know. Th here's the other big thing. In both movies, Evil Ed is supposed to be a tragic figure, mm -hmm. but in 20 minutes of this movie, they make me care more about Ed than the whole yeah. 90 minutes yeah. of the original movie. Like you actually relate to him because i think all of us have had an experience where one of our friends became too cool for us 
and it was like kind of devastating. But like in this one, it's like even deeper than that. It's not just like, hey, you abandoned us. But it's like, yo, one of our friends is probably dead and you don't give a fucking shit about it right now. Mm -hmm. And like, that's upsetting. And then like, I love when he actually has to get killed. He's telling Charlie it's okay. Like that is like a heartbreaking death scene to me. But also you're missing the other best line in this movie right before. Well, the the scene before that he goes, we could have rocked this evil shit together, which like... (laughs) It's such a better character. The, the yeah. I mean, th- that's what I think. The the charisma of the actors is so different in both movies. Like there are charismatic characters. There are charismatic actors in both. Right. Like I think Jerry is great in both. And I absolutely love that Chris Sarandon got to do a cameo and get fucking murdered mm-hmm. by yeah. New Jerry in this. But, like, here's the interesting thing, kind of as a cultural microcosm of vampirism in the original versus the remake that I noticed this time around. I hadn't really thought too heavily about it because it was, like, my third or fourth watch of this version. But, like, Jerry Dandridge in the original is kind of a Victorian vampire, you know, like the seducer, Mm -hmm. the incubus. And that wouldn't necessarily fly as much in, you know, 2011, when also like in the the grand scheme of what horror was right around the 2010s, you know, like we were, we were getting torture porn, new French extreme, stuff Mm -hmm. like that. And so they had to, and also we had 30 days of night, we had you know, almost in a sense, 28 days later, I know that's zombies, but it's it's similar in like this kind of rabid monster concept. And, and I think that that really is important because to make this movie work, they had to have someone who had sex appeal, but also was incredibly menacing because I never thought Chris Sarandon was menacing in the original. No, no. I think it's like a steal your girl kind of guy. But like, I love, I absolutely love a vampire that is going to like just kind of give you they truncate the story of of finding out that he's a vampire because they're like this is a remake we don't need to retread that too much like the people that make the spider-man movies need to (laughs) take a a note from this movie because we don't need to see uncle ben die again so here's something that's exciting news so the director of this movie craig gillespie who made this movie this is his second film His first film is the reason why so many people agreed to do this movie because they were all fans of it, which was Lars and the Real Girl. Oh, great movie. Oh, my God. Great movie. Seriously? Yeah, so when he was, like, pitching people, like, the Lars and the Real Girl guy, absolutely. And then he followed this movie with I, Tanya, which was also a very good movie. So the new movie he's making, which I am very excited for, it's going to be dropping on Disney+, Plus, is Cruella, starring Emma Stone, which is, like, the origin story of Cruella DeVille becoming who Cruella DeVille is by the time we get to 101 Dalmatians. Now, that is sick. I, I did not know about that. Yeah, and I'm like, that is a fucking movie. Like, that's a movie where it's like, oh, great, so we're doing Maleficent with Cruella DeVille, but then when you're like, yeah, but the guy who did I, Tanya, Lars and the Real Girl, and Fright Night remake is doing it, I'm like, okay, well, I'm interested now. Like, that thing's going to be... He's got this thing where it's like, I want to say that he's got a visual style, but it's almost that his visual style is that he just lets the scene play out the way the scene needs to play out. So, like, there's never, like, that's, like, the complaint that you would have with someone, like, on two ends of the spectrum, right? Like, with a Tim Burton, he's trying so much to have the Tim Burton flair that it's a distraction. Or, like, on the flip side, like a Kevin Smith, Kevin Smith's so focused on just focusing on the dialogue that nothing happens. But like, That was before. Now it's just the remember yeah. whens. That's all he's focused yeah. on. <laughs> That's all he's got is remember whens now. But, like, 
Craig Gillespie in four films or three films has proven to be a guy who's just like, you don't need to do anything too flashy unless it calls for it. And that's what I like about this movie is that like there are those flashy moments. Like the scene in the car is fantastic and it's <laughs> constant moving. Like it's a constantly moving camera and it's flashy and it's high energetic. But then like you don't need to put that exact same energy into like Ed and Charlie walking around a house. Yeah. You know, like yeah. you just let him walk around the house. <laughs> I, I don't know if he's got the final say. Like, it, I don't know if the director has the, the final say in casting. I think he I think he does. But that's another strong suit. Like, I feel like in, in 2010, if it was 2010 and we did a draft of like vampire cast, none of us would pick Colin Farrell. But he's such no. a perfect choice you know what i mean he's, like when you think so about it now him. you're like wow dude he's got like the perfect this charm. movie would not have worked out without him yeah the casting like recasting jerry dandridge is so important like that from yeah. the writing to the casting of this movie uh, and the direction obviously but like i mean and i miss anton yelchin more than i really should me you too know, like, I, no i wrote that too I, that was my first note was like i because i think we've said this on the show before but i think it was megan you said said he could have been our generation's Tom Hanks. Like he was actually yeah. like if he hadn't died, and it's a tragic death. Like he could do it all. It, yeah, and he he did sci-fi, he did horror, he did drama, he did some comedy. Like he was he was a powerhouse, and it just and also he's like so likable. Yeah, he's an actual average-looking person. Like he's he's more attractive than the average person, but like in that same Tom Hanks way in the '80s, like. He doesn't look like a superstar. He looks like the guy next door who's just a little bit more attractive than the regular person. And he's he's an so actor like, through like he is he's like true yeah. to the art where he's like he's like all right I'm gonna do Star Trek to pay my bills and then I will just do indie films for the art of acting. Like I feel like that was yeah. that that's how he did it. He did like the uh, one. I, I don't know. I feel like I would do Star. I would do high sci-fi because it's fucking high sci-fi, you know? And I think he was also a big Star Trek fan. <laughs> yeah, he, yeah, I think he was also a geek. Like, true, true. I'm just saying he did, like, a lot of, like, his independent movies are, like, the oh, best. Dude, I mean, Charlie Bartlett was the first thing I ever saw. Oh, yeah. Charlie Bartlett, I was Bartlett, like, this guy's yeah. amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I miss Anton real bad. The other thing that we do have to talk about, and, and the way I worded it was, like, the pieces of the plot all fall into place so beautifully like even something as small as like the very first time that you see tony collette she's loading in those for sale signs oh the chekhov's and, wooden stakes yeah like it's like it sets up the wooden stakes but it also is like setting up the plot the the plot point of like people keep leaving town like mm -hmm. and, and it like, makes so much more sense in Vegas than and instead of suburbia. Like it's it's so much smarter. Like I think that this movie, what I said earlier, what they did was they were like, how do we ground this a little bit more? And they were like, okay, where can we put this where people are out all night, sleep all day? You know, people are. We have a transient population, and yeah. it would just and also you could have that Chris Angel douchebag character because like that David Tennant. We haven't even said his name yet, but David Tennant yeah. steals every scene. He just every shoots scene that scenery. <laughs> it's so, so good. good. Yeah, he's and it's it's kind of a bummer that, I mean, I could be wrong, but I think that it's a bummer that this movie really didn't do amazing at the box office because I feel like this was like the attempt to get David Tennant into like American audiences outside of just being the Doctor Who guy, and I guess because the movie didn't do well, I don't really see him in anything else. He killed the it way in Jessica Jones. Yeah, no, like, but I mean, like, 
he should be a movie star. You know what I mean? Like, he's got the likability to be, a, like, hear me out on this weird casting, and he probably wouldn't do it because it's too close to Doctor Who, but, like, if for any reason Benedict Cumberbatch was like, I don't want to do Doctor Strange anymore, I'd be like, fucking David Tennant would crush it as Doctor Strange to me. Like, he would just be so weird and eccentric, and that's kind of what I want. In a do- I, I need David Tennant to play some type of Marvel villain, I think. I think that's Why what don't needs we get him to be like I know that Mordo is already taken in the Doctor Strange universe, but I'm sure that they can find some other dark magician to fight him. It would be <laughs> the shit. Because like I I see what you're saying about David Tennant killing it as, you know, the Sorcerer Supreme, but at the same time I'm like I can't see anybody except Cumberbatch in that role now. And like I remember years ago when they announced that, I was like, No fucking way. I I, I that's not <laughs> It is also here's the thing is that Kevin Feige, I, I assume he kind of has executive say on all of the all of the major castings. And so, like when he picked uh, RDJ instead of Giant Depp for Iron Man, first of all, like Giant Depp is Ret- yeah, retrospectively great call. <laughs> yeah, like but and Robert Downey Jr. is Tony Stark. I mean, it, it, and it, he's the linchpin of the entire MCU. Like, if Iron Man 1 had not done so well, and maybe that was John Favreau, probably, like, who who made that casting decision, not Kevin Feige. But, like, at the end of the day, once a character is so perfectly matched, there's no way for, for someone to see them otherwise, to see that character otherwise. And that's, I think, better to come to batch because yeah. I've said it many times on the show, Doctor Strange is my favorite MCU uh, movie and it is the one that I mean like the, the first one is the movie that I go back and watch the most I know that that is controversial for most people because they're like eh but I love it because I love I can't the... wait for the sequel the oh, sequel is going to yeah. be like the sequel is going to be one of those movies where if we're not out of the pandemic and they announce that they're releasing that in theaters I'm like am I about to risk my life to see this <laughs> sequel because now, that is one of the few movies that I would be like yes I need to see this in theaters because it's such a brain twister and an eye like an, an eye banquet I guess is what yeah. you like it's a visual banquet because I mean you need to see it on a big screen because there's going to be so much going on they're going to ramp up the craziness a hundredfold I mean it's called the multiverse of madness. madness. So oh, it's dude! Like, and speaking of multiverse of madness, we're recording this just what five days before Wandavision drops. Do not remind a- me. We, th- I'm uh, so stoked. Like <laughs> I, I, I saw this in theaters. Actually, I what this so was lucky. one of the this was one of the movies I saw when I was living in L.A. Uh, and it was at actually one of the cooler movie theaters I'd ever been to. But I saw it in 3D. And it's probably one of the better like usages of 3D. I didn't even Just, know this movie was 3D. Yeah, it was it was a released specifically as a 3D movie. But again, when you do the 3D properly, it can transfer to a 2D movie without it being noticeable. So first of all, just setting up the place. So it was a normal movie theater, but their whole theme was like old Hollywood under the stars inside the theater. So when you sat down in the seats, like the walls were painted to look like old landmarks in Hollywood. But the really cool part was that the ceiling, instead of lights, like normal lights, was actually a series of very small lights. So it looked like stars. Oh, that's cool. So when they dimmed the lights, it felt like you were outside watching it underneath the stars for a couple seconds before they shut those lights off. But the way that the 3D would work, and the biggest one that I remember is when uh, Doris explodes out of nowhere. 
is that it was built so that it felt like all the dust particles were floating around you every time that someone exploded. And it was just like cool shit like that. Like that was how they would utilize the 3D was like making you feel like you were there witnessing it as it happened and not so much just like, bah, here's a yo-yo. Like, <laughs> that's what I was about to say is like, I, maybe that's the, the hallmark of a really good 3D movie is that when it transfers to 2D, the effects are not in your face you know like i think that that may be you know if you're augmenting reality in such a way maybe don't yeah. well the car scene felt awesome because the way the the camera moved you felt like you were in the passenger seat of the car while it was happening <laughs> a fucked up vampire hand now do you believe me <laughs> <laughs> i love that car scene like i i think that that car scene is like one of the best suspenseful action pieces in a horror movie in like a decade you know like, what else I love? So good. Tony fucking Colette. Mm -hmm. Tony Col So I read Anton Yelchin and someone else are the only people that didn't have to put on fake American accents. Like so many <laughs> of, the, of the stars in this movie are British actors or actors from other parts of Europe having to throw on fake accents. Did you guys ever see that movie where he's like in a phone booth or something like that? That movie sucked. Yeah, it was called, I think it was phone, called booth. phone Booth. <laughs> 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 that wasn't a bit, guys. Like I, I seriously... <laughs> So, so the one thing I will say about the CGI, because I agree with you that for the most part, the CGI looks pretty bad. There's like a couple moments where you can tell that it's enhancing what's already a practical effect. But one of the pieces of CGI that I actually really do like is when Jerry gets impaled by the for sale sign and he's like all twisted up trying to crawl away. Yeah. It's like a very unsettling usage. Yeah, and you know, I also really love that you get to see how understated Jerry's vampire strength is. Like, yeah, he, he fucking throws a, a, a car door into the back of their, or, or no, it's a wheel, mm -hmm. is a wheel. Uh, I mean, yeah, like that's, that's showing just how strong a vampire is. But what's really cool is that it's world building in that they, like when the first time you actually see him in action, if I remember correctly, is when he just walks straight into the backyard while they're all watching him and he just starts digging up clots of dirt like that's superhuman strength and i loved yeah. that and then he just he pulls up the gas line and he just lights it and they're like oh fuck you know like it's such a <laughs> such a clever way to do it i absolutely love it so two things from the imdb trivia about colin farrell both that uh one is just like man colin farrell rules and the other one is just the wording of it is really funny it's, so I'll read the funny one first. It says, Colin Farrell expressed concern that his character was too much like a sexual predator and requested that the script have some changes made. No changes were made. <laughs> but, but then the other one says, Colin Farrell requested that he do a monologue in Latin, saying that it would be more menacing. He obtained a Latin tutor to teach him the monologue and studied the language on set. The monologue never made it to the screen. However, the Latin tutor was so fascinated by Farrell's ability to pick up Latin that she wrote a scholarly article detailing her time on the movie set. Holy shit, that's wild. God love Toni Collette. You know, she's given us so many iconic horror movies. She, yeah. I, she was in The Sixth Sense of the Mom. You know, yeah. that's 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 taking us back to was that 96 or 97 whenever that movie came out. That movie is iconic. It's it's dumb as fuck now, but like at the time world changing for for middle America, all right? And she gave us and and just let's bookend it. Hereditary, you know, like those two. I mean, she's done a lot of other shit. Don't get me wrong, but like two super super important, super like culturally significant horror movies. She's just awesome. I fucking love Tony mm -hmm. Collette. 
Yeah, she's in, uh, like, most of my favorite movies. So the other thing that is here uh, that was interesting, and I guess Steven Spielberg had some type of producer credit in some way, but it says Steven Spielberg only made two contributions to the film. First was that he wanted to insert the shot of the crucifix falling in the pool directly in front of the camera after Jerry attacks Ed. The other was that Jerry's fourth stage of makeup when previewed, he said that it wasn't scary enough and insisted that the original concept of a shark-like jaw be put back into the movie. That's fair. I mean, I don't, yeah. I don't love it. I don't I don't love the effect, no. but it's I really can look past it, honestly. The, the effect looks better on Imogen Poots when she has like the throwback to to the original movie yeah. jaw. Like that you know looks what's a little funny? bit better. I, if we're talking about vampire pa- superpowers, did you notice that becoming a vampire makes your boobs grow exponentially? <laughs> crazy, guys. It's crazy. I wasn't aware. I'll have to rewatch and pay attention. Uh, I've been thinking about this line a lot lately, and we won't get into politics, but... Yes, we will. <laughs> there's a scene where Anton is trying desperately to convince Peter Vincent that the vampires exist, and he's showing him all this evidence, and he says a line where he goes, do you think that I want to know this shit? And, like, the way he says it is, like, so pained, and it's, like, it makes me think of, uh, you know, on the Patreon episode with Kroll, when it's, like, if you could have one wish, what would you wish for? And the, the Cyclops that sees the future says ignorance. Like, he is so pained by knowing this knowledge, and it would be so much easier for him to live a happy life just never knowing that Jerry was a vampire. But, like, it's one of those things where, like, once the bottle's open, you can't put that shit back. I love that line. And I think it's it's the most justifiable piece of character development of Charlie in either movie. Absolutely. But then you get that kind of like that skepticism, which is weird because it's, I don't know how I feel. I'm not going to criticize this part of the, the, the storyline, but the fact that Peter Vincent's parents were murdered by Jerry, and that's what made him kind of like obsessed with the occult. I don't know if I love that. I, I think that it's a bit too coincidental. That's a little rough. I do like in the original movie that it's just like, dude, I'm, fu- I'm a fucking actor. Like, like, I think that it's it's more entertaining when it's, like, someone who really doesn't know shit. Like, they've well, just no, been no, I, buying I, their own bullshit. Yeah, but. I get that. But I'm saying, like, you could still have David Tennant's character have had his parents killed by vampires. And that's what led him to the occult, right? Yeah, it's a little bit of, like, the Joker the Joker killed Batman's parents in the first Batman movie. Yeah, like, that's fucking it's, stupid. It's, yeah, like, it's it, a little too much. It was never, it was never <laughs> the Joker. If we're going to be comic book nerds, you know, if we're going to be yeah, nerds. It never was. It, it never should have been. It was a been. Tim Burton invention. <laughs> Well, yeah, and if we're talking, we've brought up Tim Burton twice in this episode, and can we just say that Tim Burton's a shitbag uh, yeah. and move on? So do we have any other last thoughts on Fright Night Beyond? Go check it out if you've been putting it off because you're like, eh, I don't like remakes. <laughs> and, if, and if you want to know about a couple other like decent remakes, hit up our Patreon where we're going to start the conversation there, but probably go into God knows how many other tangents. <laughs> Patreon.com backslash HMN podcast. Hi, friends. The world got you down. Don't be sad. Listen to $2 Late Fee with Zach and Dustin. $2 Late Fee is the podcast that celebrates the best decade of entertainment, the 1980s. We pick a movie and soundtrack from our youth that we loved and see if it holds up today. We also interview your favorite celebrities from that era. All in the spirit of positivity and togetherness. Check us out at $2LateFee.com.
Put down that smartphone and listen to me. I'm Matthew Milligan, professional musician and lifelong Weird Al fan. Each week, I'm joined by professional podcaster and close personal friend Matt Kelly to take a dive off the deep end into the vast career of pop culture icon Weird Al Yankovic on our show, Weird Algorithm. Along with some very special guests from the worlds of music and comedy, we tackle every song, every television appearance, and every bit of sketch comedy Al has produced in chronological order, covering the good old days of My Bologna and Eat It, the fun zone of tacky and white and nerdy, and everything in between. As we go, we're ranking the songs, albums, and music videos in the hopes of creating the ultimate guide to a career bigger than the biggest ball of twine in Minnesota. So the next time you're having one of those days stuck in a traffic jam wondering why does this always happen to me, just kick off your sneakers and stick around for a while because we've got it all on Weird Algorithm, available wherever you get your podcasts. And now you know. Was that enough references? Well, uh, since this is my week, uh, this was my pick, um, I'm gonna. I get the illustrious first double feature, and I'm gonna go mm. with Evil Dead 2012. Is that what Ooh. it is? 2013, I think. But 2013, yes. yeah. Because my if I was doing a triple feature, it'd be with Maniac 2012. So like those are they're they're all right around this. I mean, you could do Fright Night 2011, Maniac 2012, Evil Dead 2013, and do this like you know litany of in order fucking <laughs> in order of great remakes year by year. <laughs> Brian, do you want to go? Yeah, I'm just going to follow in Scott's footsteps and do uh, Town the Dreaded Sundown remake. All right. Good call. All right. I am going to not pick a remake, <laughs> but I'm going to pick another movie that paired up Anton Yelchin and Imogen Poots. Green Room. Oh, a such a great delightful movie. movie. Delightful movie. Is that well, the one? not delightful. Wait, but... <laughs> is Green Room where they sing Nazi punks, fuck off? Yes. Yep. Yes. And Patrick Stewart plays a, the head of a Nazi cult. Yep. That's yeah. the one. Yeah, I've never Got seen it. the whole thing, but I definitely watched Anton Yelchin sing fucking Nazi punks fuck off with uh, Maybe, and I was like, I think I saw everything I need to see from this film. <laughs> Have you seen Blue Ruin, Scott? No. I don't know if you would like I, it. I haven't. I haven't even seen Blue oh, Ruin. Oh, it's, it's awesome. It's it's the movie he made before Green Room. Right. And it's it's a revenge movie, but it's like a more realistic revenge movie, which makes it more fun. It's like not like, hey, because you know how it's like, hey, Look at Straw Dogs. Perfect example. Like, hey, here's like a pushover. But like all of a sudden, you know, revenge gives him the strength to like kick ass. Like it's a it's a guy trying to get revenge for his family, but is an average guy. So he doesn't have like this like martial arts, badass Sylvester Stallone fucking strength. He's like doesn't know what the fuck he's doing. You know, like can't cock a gun. Can't it, it's but it's like really, really it's really well done. Nice. I, I know I want to check that out. But Scott. What did you watch this week that you want to tell people about? All right, so I just want to talk for a second about how hilarious Megan and I, um, our Netflix algorithm must be, how fucky it must be, because we binged Bridgerton um, in about three days, and it was great. Have you guys watched Bridgerton? Mm -mm. Not yet. Everything that I've been seeing about it, uh, I know I need to check it out. My, my friend Brooke texted me at work the other day and was like, because I've watched Bridgerton, I am now weirdly obsessed with the Vitamin String Quartet and listening to a bunch of their covers. <laughs> so I know that there's a bunch of Vitamin String Quartet-style yeah, covers throughout. Yeah, super, super cool. <laughs> their cover of uh, Thank You, Next is absolutely perfect. So yeah, Bridgerton's fun. It's also frustrating. It's fun because it's a period piece. Um, and it's, it's just rich people being naughty, you know? Um, the costumes aren't great because Megan and I, when we watch shit, we watch 
to look at the costumes, you know, and Megan is a huge Mad Men um, aficionado, and, and so she's always honed in on whether or not the costuming is good, and costuming is not good, but it doesn't matter because it's kind of like this, oh, you know in Hollywood, that the, the, that was a Netflix show, right? Was that? Yes. Yeah. Was not, mm-hmm. um, it's kind of like an alternate reality where, you know, people of color actually have a say in life. And I, Bridgerton isn't either. Bridgerton is was produced by a black woman. Um, I can't remember her name or the name of her company, but Megan knew some of the stuff that she'd already done. And so there are, are like black nobles in it. And and that's obviously not something that would have truly been in, in uh, you know, like I think it's 1800s, like yeah. that. But like there would be no nobles. Like the Duke would not be black. You know, yeah. it's just no, not that a makes thing. Sense. So, but it's yeah. it's cool. It's like a reimagining. Nice. I I know that I want to watch it, and I want to watch it soon. Yeah, you should watch <laughs> it soon. Very, like the the stakes are low, you know, and they'll do another season. It's fun. But that's the way I like. We it. immediately <laughs> jumped from there to Sabrina season four, and I feel like Netflix is like, why? <laughs> you know, because <laughs> like they could not be more dissimilar. Uh, Bridgerton is basically for the thirty plus crowd, and Sabrina has gone from being kind of like an all ages horror to basically being Riverdale with shitty demons in it and season four or three episodes four episodes in um, I may finish it on my own just like slog through it because it's not as bad as season three so far but it's bad it's just Riverdale nobody's likable uh, you know like they they've neutered all the fun characters Reverend Blackwood doesn't even get to be crazy and over the top anymore you know what Brian said months ago he was like Netflix can't not take a good show and ruin it yeah like i didn't i I didn't even know if season four was good or bad unfortunately because i i put on the first episode i didn't care you know what i mean like i don't care either i literally am i want to see the eldritch terrors yeah like i'm like like, waiting i'm waiting for them to be good and there are so many choices like stylistic choices like the um uninvited who's like the second eldritch horror that you see Mm -hmm. like why does he just talk like a dude why wouldn't yeah. he talk like an otherworldly being? Like the darkness in the first episode. Why did it just sound like a dude's voice? Why wouldn't they have put some sort of vocoder on it or made it basically sound like whispers? Or like there are a million ways that you could do little world building things to make these shows not fucking suck. Mm-hmm. But yeah, here we are. Just and also good, but... Kieran Shipka can't act to save her fucking life. Or sing. Oh, and we oh. have to do, watch her do both these things. But fun fact about Bridgeton, uh, Vitamin String Quartet had a role in my wedding, uh, but don't tell them because we didn't pay them. <laughs> I'll let that sit. Uh, Brian, <laughs> beyond that weird fun fact, is there anything you watch that you want to say, hey, check it out? Yeah, and that's all I'm going to say. I'm just going to say, hey, check it out, and I'm going to wait for you two to see it because it's very rare non-horror, I will say. It's very rare non-horror that the three of us all would really like a movie, I think. And uh, Promising Young Women is uh, is uh, definitely one that on I the think list. all three of us yep. would, would, would really like. So oh, we'll wait for you guys wait, to watch it. Wait, where is that available at? Because that was something that I was like super stoked to see in it's theaters when I was seeing the It's not available. I went to iPick. Oh. Oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's just leave it. Leave it at it's not. Um, <laughs> okay. Well, then. Just trying to get sued by them and the Vitamin String Quartet. Got it. Uh, so No, no. It's me being an asshole, not, not me being a criminal. 
<laughs> so I have two documentaries that I watched, and one is on Shutter, so everybody can watch it, and then the other one I only was able to get through ordering a disc in the mail from Netflix. Um, but the one that's on Shutter that everyone can see is Blood and Flesh, The Real Life and Ghastly Death of Al Adamson, which is a fascinating combination of two of our favorite documentaries because on one hand it's a true crime documentary about Mm. this film director who got murdered but for the first hour of it it's also just the story of him as a filmmaker making all of these weird b-level exploitation films in the uh 60s 70s and 80s and as i'm watching it i'm like man Brian would watch this movie and have such a long list of movies that he would want us to watch oh, for no. the show. Why are you but suggesting like, this to him? But, like, so a few of the ones that I'd actually heard of, he did, like, Psycho A Go-Go. He did Dracula versus Frankenstein in 1971. I'm going to read some of these names because, man, exploitation in the 60s and 70s. Blood of Dracula's Castle. The Fiend with an Electric Brain. The Female Bunch. Satan Sadists. Hell's Bloody Devils. The Brain of Blood. The Blood of the Ghastly Horror, Angels, Wild Women, The Dynamite Brothers, I Spit on Your Corpse, The Blazing Stewardesses, Black Heat, Black Samurai, Dr. Dracula, Death Dimension, Carnival Magic, and then just Lost. (laughs) So those were some of the the classic titles that uh, Al Adamson made. But then the other documentary that I watched that I was fucking captivated by was called Resurrect Dead, The Mystery of the Tombi Tiles, which I heard about through the Colors of the Dark podcast, which is uh, Elric and Becca of uh, Shockwaves fame, their new podcast. And Becca recommended this. And it was so weird because it all takes place in Philadelphia. And it's about these tiles that if you walk around the city of Philadelphia, you will see on the streets that say like resurrect dead uh, movie 2001 resurrect dead on planet Jupiter. And it basically is these three art students from Philly who kept seeing these tiles and became obsessed with the history of the tiles and like them going crazy, trying to figure out who is making these tiles. What's the message he's trying to send to people. And it's just a really captivating watch. And it's like a quick 80 minute documentary. Uh, if you can find it, it's it's definitely low budget. It's like a documentary that's made out of like seven people interviews total. But you're so hooked on the mystery. You're like, I need to figure out what's going on. <laughs> like, you want to know something funny about my picks? You guys got saved because I didn't feel like doing a bit for two hours because it was a two hour movie but you should avoid those documentaries just to get inside the mind for the listeners i almost picked a a 70s horror called the mephisto waltz and it's a two-hour cult movie but i only almost only picked it because alan alda is the star and i just i just I'm so interested in him being like, oh, hey, uh, uh, Satan's here, huh? Uh, oh, hey. <laughs> spooky. What are you guys doing over here? Uh. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, so talking about 70s exploitation horror, tune in next week when we discuss some 70s exploitation horror as picked by Brian. But in the meantime, hit up our Patreon, patreon.com backslash HMN podcast, or subscribe to the podcast. God forbid, I've... You know, I've heard rumors that there are people that listen to our show, but they haven't subscribed on anything. What the hell is that about? So go ahead and subscribe, rate, and review so we know that you're out there. Thanks, guys, and we'll be back next week.
to the Geekscape Network. Hi, friends. The world got you down. Don't be sad. Listen to $2 Late Fee with Zach and Dustin. $2 Late Fee is the podcast that celebrates the best decade of entertainment, the 1980s. We pick a movie and soundtrack from our youth that we loved and see if it holds up today. We also interview your favorite celebrities from that era. All in the spirit of positivity and togetherness. Check us out at $2LateFee.com. Put down that smartphone and listen to me. I'm Matthew Milligan, professional musician and lifelong Weird Al fan. Each week, I'm joined by professional podcaster and close personal friend Matt Kelly to take a dive off the deep end into the vast career of pop culture icon Weird Al Yankovic on our show, Weird Algorithm. Along with some very special guests from the worlds of music and comedy, we tackle every song, every television appearance, and every bit of sketch comedy Al has produced in chronological order. Covering the good old days of My Bologna and Eat It, the fun zone of tacky and white and nerdy, and everything in between. As we go, we're ranking the songs, albums, and music videos in the hopes of creating the ultimate guide to a career bigger than the biggest ball of twine in Minnesota. So the next time you're having one of those days stuck in a traffic jam wondering why does this always happen to me, just kick off your sneakers and stick around for a while because we've got it all on Weird Algorithm. Available wherever you get your podcasts. And now you know. Was that enough references? You're listening to the Geekscape Network. 